Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fishery science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. If you're the generous type, you can be like Ben, Janet, Robin, Garrett, John, and Jerry, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you're able to support the show with either a recurring or a one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store, so go check it out. Our guest today is Dr. Patrick Shirey, a certified ecologist, a certified fisheries professional, and an assistant professor in the Department of Geology and Environmental Science at the University of Pittsburgh. Equally comfortable in waders conducting fieldwork as in a business suit meeting with policymakers, Patrick uses his training in aquatic ecology and law to affect ecological restoration and inform environmental policy. He has served in many roles with the American Fisheries Society since 2015 and is now one of two candidates running for the role of second vice president of AFS. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Elise. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Before we get into all the science mumbo jumbo, um, the very first line on your Ecology Policy LLC website is, I connect people to nature. Before we go into more detail about your professional experience, can you talk about why you start with that statement and why you think connecting people to nature is important? Oh, absolutely. So I just this morning, I did an outreach event before going to teach uh, my environmental law and policy class, I, I did an outreach event for my daughter's fourth grade class, uh, two classes at her elementary school. And I was asked by, um, after the parent-teacher conference by her teacher, that they were covering ecology in the next lesson plans. And so I was happy to do so. And the reason being is because the same stream that runs next to my house is the same stream that runs next to the elementary school. And the stream has steep hillsides next to it. And I think a lot of the students that attend the elementary school just haven't set foot in the stream. We don't have a lot of public access areas to the watersheds around here. And I thought, well, here's an opportunity to connect the students at my daughter's elementary school with a conversation about nature and about how these streams historically would have supported Eastern Hellbender and the brook trout. And one of the messages I wanted to, to share was that our decisions in our, in our yards or at our places of business or at our schools have an impact on whether we see Eastern Hellbender and brook trout in our local streams. If you go back decades, you would have found these species um, more abundant than they are today. And if we don't make the connection of introducing that to the general public, introducing that to our children in schools, then we can expect them to care about the Eastern Hellbender and the Brook Trout. We can expect them to advocate for conservation of these species. We can expect them to think about, if I remove these trees, if I remove these shrubs on this property, what's that going to do to the water quality downstream? And so when I say I connect people to nature, I, I, I try to do that the best I can in my outreach work, in my science, and in my teaching. That's really incredible. I think 
you know, right in line with what you were saying about if we remove these trees or if we change this landscape, what's the effect on everything else? I think for a long time, people operated without having that kind of thought at all. <laughs> so starting it, you know, with young kids or even young adults and introducing that way of thinking is like so important. So that's really cool. Thanks, Elise. I agree. I One of the things I stress, and I don't want to leave students like without an option moving forward. I want to give them hope. And I say, one of the things you can do is you can begin to plant things and encourage others to plant trees and shrubs that are native and also beneficial. So you can plant the pawpaw that's America, North America's largest native fruit on, on your property. And so you're not only, not only keeping soil and nutrients from getting in the water, but then you're growing food. And the same with blueberries. You could plant that as a shrub. And the local county conservation district will work with landowners and, and pay for the planting of these shrubs and, and trees. So that somebody has a conservation benefit as well as a potential food source or income source for their land as well. And so those are things I really think we need to be doing moving forward. And when I say I try to connect people to nature, that's, that's what I... That's what I want to do. Absolutely. I always think about the fact that, you know, we say money doesn't grow on trees, but food does. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's an awesome way to think about the interconnectivity of things and how we can have all these benefits just by doing simple actions. That's really, really cool. Um, so, more on to the kind of fish related questions. <laughs> When did your interest in fisheries actually begin? I'd have to say it began at an early age in part because my family had a camp along the Allegheny River near Franklin, Pennsylvania. Um, but that interest came and went over time. I had um, my, my parents would take me to the camp. Occasionally, my, my uncle, my mom's brother would take me fishing. And I was more interested in what was going on in the water or what the frogs were doing than I was in trying to catch fish. And that's just, that's just who I am. But I was always fascinated by, by um, the rivers and streams and fascinated when my mom took me to a local nature preserve um, that the Audubon Society of Western Pennsylvania manages called uh, Todd Sanctuary. And so those were formative experiences, formative memories, I think, I think for any child, your close relatives are, are incredibly important in the career path you, you choose. I definitely can relate uh, to the being distracted by everything going on around you when you're supposed to be, you know, trying to catch fish. Um, I grew up in Wisconsin, so we've got quite a bit of fishing here. And I didn't realize I was interested in it till I became an adult. <laughs> but I went fishing plenty of times. <laughs> I just never got into the whole cast and weight part of it. Yeah. Me, me neither, at least I think it was, uh, it's not to say that uh, I don't appreciate how others enjoy it. Uh, just that a part of it wasn't, wasn't for me. And it wasn't until high school. I, I really wasn't interested in science. I didn't think I would be good at it. And the jury's still out on that. But I, uh, I had high school science classes where I was earning C's in the high school science class. And I, I owe my career to, to Judith Kerlick. And, and um, Mrs. Kerlick 
my junior year said there was a teen docent program at the local uh, Carnegie Museum of Natural History in, in, in Pittsburgh. And it was a volunteer program and asked if anyone was interested. And, and I raised my hand and she said, Mr. Shirey, are you serious about this? Are you really going to move forward with this? Because I did not take my science classes as seriously as I did my other, my writing classes, English. Uh, I enjoyed, I enjoyed performing arts and um, I just didn't do very well at them. I said, yes, I, I, I want to try this. And, and she wrote a letter of support and I got accepted to a teen, the teen docent program. And that changed, changed my life because I saw a different side of science and, than what was in the classroom. And had she not done that, I, I know I wouldn't be on this path. And so, as, as I said, as interests come, yeah, had come and, come and gone at different times growing up, it was, it was that outreach program that really connected me to see a different side of scientific career um, opportunities. Yeah, that is one of the huge benefits of outreach. I don't know. I feel like when when children especially think of what a scientist is, they think of like almost a robot in a lab, <laughs> like mixing chemicals and not having feelings <laughs> or families or, you know, and uh, one of the things I love about doing this podcast is actually talking to scientists as people <laughs> because we all are. Absolutely. So you got your start and your interest in science through that program. What brought you to law after that? Yeah, so it was after I earned a degree in wildlife and fishery science at Penn State, and I went to, ended up going to New Mexico State um, for a master's degree after I started on the PhD program at the University of Alabama, and it just didn't work out. Um, I, I was there the first semester, person I was going to work with just um, left for another university, and so I, I found another opportunity. And it was in that opportunity at, at New Mexico State University studying the endangered Rio Grande silvery minnow that I discovered the challenges of managing an endangered species in an over-appropriated river system in terms of water availability. And I said, if I'm going to work on endangered species long-term, and I had that interest to continue that work, and I wanted a stronger foundation in the policy and the law. And so my alma mater back at the School of Forest Resources had partnered with the Dickinson School of Law that had recently at that time merged with Pennsylvania State University. And they had a joint degree program with uh, JD and PhD. And so I went back thinking I, I would uh, do the joint degree. Uh, things didn't work out for the funding on the PhD part. And so I said, you know what, I'll get the law degree and I'll look elsewhere for, for graduate school. And so it was that working with endangered species, getting that firsthand experience, working on early life history, working on uh, diet that I realized I needed more. I needed more information. I needed an additional knowledge base if I wanted to continue to work on threatened oh. endangered species and, and effectuate change. That's really interesting. I When I looked at your website, I couldn't tell that you had done the law degree before the PhD. I was very fortunate that in finishing up, there were some great graduate programs that had um, started 
NSF IGERT funding. And one of the programs to which I applied was the University of Notre Dame. And they had a graduate program that specifically combined different disciplines. And not only did I have a fantastic PhD advisor in Gary Lamberti, but I had fantastic committee members, including Ron Helenthal and David Lodge in biology, but then Chris Hamlin in history, environmental historian, and John Nagel in the law school at Notre Dame. And so I had uh, committee members that, that enabled me to have a more interdisciplinary PhD. So I was able to take that, take that experience and, um, from law school and, and make the best of it with the PhD program. Now that didn't come up, come without its challenges, both switching from science to law school and law school back to science. Um, the first semester in law school, uh, Dickinson, I don't know if they still do it, but they ranked, they, they post, they would rank the law students and post them like their performance at the end of the semester on a bulletin board. And oh, it was by, <laughs> yeah, it was by student number. And um, so you didn't know, you don't know who it was, but I, I, I knew I didn't perform as well as I could uh, at, at my exams. And I got the, um, I got the ranking on my mail transcript at the end of the semester and, and uh, it was bad. And I was 174 out of 178. And I was like, well, at least I wasn't last, except I went to the bulletin board and I was dead last because those other four had dropped out that semester. Oh, no. Well, it has a good ending because I was motivated to get better. And every semester I had improved in the ranking. And the last semester of law school, um, I was 19th that semester and I had brought myself up into the top 100 by the time I had finished. So it was, it was an interesting experience. And the transition back to science was challenging as well. Um, you use different parts of your brain and, and when you experience it, you realize, you realize that it, it is, it's, um, it can be quite challenging. I, I think as a result, I'm sympathetic to what is challenges students go through in their programs, undergraduate and graduate programs. But I, I, aim to persevere and move on from, from failures. That's honestly great to hear. I think a lot of people at my career stage and maybe younger, I'm like an early career scientist, you know, look at researchers like you or people who've already done their PhDs and think like, oh, they must have done it perfectly the whole time. <laughs> and it's not true for probably most people. Absolutely. If it uh, other people are not telling you the full story, I think otherwise. But it, you do have those bumps in the road and setbacks, and um, it's it. It's not that it isn't without the challenges. There's mental challenges at the time, but uh, I, you learn to work. You learn to work through them and get better. Um, and I was fortunate to have some good help along the way, not only in law school, but then in back in the PhD program at Notre Dame. Uh, great interdisciplinary program. In addition to committee members, I had great mentors like Jennifer Tank was a teaching mentor now uh, that works on nutrient impacts in, in aquatic ecosystems. And I just had fond memories of the time, time there and 
camaraderie among the graduate students and the mentorship from the faculty. That's great. It sounds like you had an awesome PhD experience. So you mentioned that you had some, some great help along the way. I'm wondering now, how has AFS shaped your career and how did you first get involved with AFS? I first got involved with AFS, at least at Penn State as an undergraduate. At that time, there was a, um, there was a student, uh, student subunit at Penn State that was involved, I think largely led by the graduate students and some undergraduates were, were involved as well. And they encouraged students to attend the local um, chapter meetings. And at that time, they had it at a, the H.R. Stackhouse School of Conservation facility that's owned by the um, Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission. And they had it most of the time at the, it was always at the same location from what I remember during that time. And I remember fondly, they would do, typically do it on a Friday evening um, in the fall and in the spring. And they'd have uh, pizza with like three technical talks. And so we got to meet people that were leaders at AFS, at the, at the parent society level, at the local level. And those were great, um, great experiences. Now, I didn't realize at that time you would pay the amount of dues for a student for the local chapter, I think was probably $3. I didn't realize at the time that I was an affiliate member of AFS. I wasn't a, I wasn't a member of AFS. And, and so this is something that we as a society continue to struggle with to try and solve that challenge. And I, I have experienced that as someone who thought you know, they were involved, thought they were a member with the society, but they were just engaged in, in chap, chapter events without being a, a member. And so it wasn't until later in law school when I joined as a member of AFS and attended my first conference at Lake Placid in 2006 and then got more involved with the Pennsylvania chapter and served on the bid committee as the student representative to host the 2010 meeting, which ended up being in Pittsburgh. The Pennsylvania chapter won that, won that uh, bid to host. So I got more involved then as a graduate student with the, uh, with the society and have, have been involved since. And one thing I've observed in uh, Pennsylvania chapter is they've grown from those small meetings from 25, 30 individuals typically to now I wasn't able to attend our most recent meeting, but I just got the email today saying that we had 115, 115 people attend the most recent um, meeting. And that's because our Pennsylvania chapter decided to change up the meetings, focus on a spring meeting, and then move it throughout the state to increase the participation of people throughout Pennsylvania. Uh, the other thing we've done, other thing the Pennsylvania chapter has done is met with the other uh, chapters as well. Every so many years we host or or the West Virginia chapter hosts a meeting in Pennsylvania or West Virginia. And those, those have been positive experiences uh, when I've been able to attend. That's quite a bit of growth by just kind of meeting people where they actually are. That moving it around the state was a clever move. Yes, the Pennsylvania chapter has had some amazing 
leaders over the years and, and just great direction from the current officers. Well, that sounds like a good segue into my next question, which is what is your vision for the future of AFS as a whole? I really want to continue to support our membership the best way, um, best way that we can, but I also want to grow our membership. We know as a society that we have a lot of potential members that we haven't yet added. And a lot of our leaders of our state uh, fisheries agencies are not AFS members. And a lot of our people that work in the profession are not AFS members. And I've asked the question, why? And I think we need to work on finding the answer because I think the future of our of our profession depends on making sure we're including as many people at the table in the profession to help things move forward. Um, and I think this is something we've struggled with as a society for as long as I can remember as a member of, of AFS is that we've plateaued in membership growth, but the profession has a lot more people working in it that are not AFS members that could be. And I think by growing our membership, then we can show whether it's engaging with policymakers, whether it's finding additional uh, volunteers, whether it's building a network that advance, advances um, fisheries in the public eye and in training professionals. I just think there's a tremendous opportunity there to grow our membership and, and serve the profession. It does seem like there is a big opportunity for increased collaboration there too, you know, if you if you got more people, <laughs> then you've got more ideas flowing and absolutely, Elise. I there. I wholeheartedly agree because some of my uh, favorite projects I've worked on have come through collaborations that started out of volunteer work with the American Fisheries Society, and I treasure and I value those professional relationships that are ongoing. Um, I've worked with Sue Colvin on Waters in the United States rule and a larger team effort that, that she has led and that others are involved in taking turns leading different aspects of that. That led to additional collaboration with Sue on threatened and endangered species work that wouldn't have happened but for that volunteer work on the Clean Water Act and the waters of the United States rule. So I've seen the value of building that network through volunteering, through working on these efforts. And, and I want others in the profession to experience that as well. So we've kind of talked about this a little bit. I wanna ask about if you have ideas on how to emphasize the importance of membership to fish, uh, fisheries professionals that aren't currently involved with AFS. And then also, I just want to mention here for all of our listeners that for this election that's coming up, only AFS members can vote. <laughs> so if you're an AFS member, you should vote. And if you're not an AFS member, keep that in mind if you would like to vote. So, Elise, we, 
the society worked hard on recovering America's Wildlife Act for our members in the United States. And that was something that we can take to those people who aren't members and say, we're working hard on behalf of the wider profession to try and get commitment of resources from the United States Congress for you, for your work, and for things you care about. We would like to have you at that table. You know, our chapter presidents, our society officers, they wrote letters to the representatives, to their senators. They called representatives. They called their senators to remind them of the importance of recovering America's Wildlife Act to the profession. So we'd say, how do we get those individuals that are in leadership roles, especially, to come to the table and join AFS, but then also encourage people that work for them to come to the table and join AFS. One of the things that as a division officer, I ask that, that we do is to change the membership gift form from a PDF to an electronic submission. Uh, and I think we can do that for other member services, like going through the renewal process of certification, which I'm doing right now, and I need to need to do, that there are ways we can serve our membership by automating some things that make our staff at headquarters more efficient and that serve our membership as well. So I think highlighting that our members, our volunteers, making concerted efforts to make sure our elected representatives are investing in the profession is, is why people should join AFS. Because with that additional support, we can do so much more. Just before we move on to the next question, I just wanted to ask if there are any benefits besides getting to vote in these elections you know, what are the benefits of being in AFS, especially, you know, maybe if you aren't in those leadership roles that you mentioned? There are tremendous benefits from just making connections with other individuals in the society. And then also the training opportunities, the education opportunities, the conferences, both locally, regionally, inter internationally. There's tremendous opportunity for engagement. The fact that our volunteers, our staff record and produce webinars, that they work hard on producing educational materials that serve a lot. The fact that you get a color magazine every month in the mail, the fact that you get a color magazine in the mail every month that has up-to-date professional information, that has advertisements about the latest equipment that has news updates from what our chapters and divisions and parent society are doing, that alone is worth quite a bit of money. If you were to go to a newsstand and buy a magazine, what would you pay for the equivalent uh, type of magazine per month? And I think that for our membership, we get a lot of return on each dollar invested. Very cool. Okay, so... <laughs> You've done a lot of work in so many intersecting fields. 
spanning multiple habitats, various fish species. And if we talked in detail about all those projects, we'd probably be here all day. (laughs) So are there any projects that you've worked on that you think are worth mentioning and that you would like to highlight before we move on to your final five questions? I spent a lot of time looking at your website and, and, you know, the names of your publications. And I was like, I don't even know where to start for this one (laughs) because it's just such a wide variety of topics. I was kind of blown away, honestly. You know, uh, my, one of my mentors, Jennifer Tank has said, if you don't publish it, it's like it never happened. And, and I have a few (laughs) projects like that. And so I'm trying to think at least, but I, there are probably some of those projects that, that I'd like to get out the, the door. I think without a doubt, probably though, some of my favorite memories are, are a project that's ongoing. It's one of those that isn't published. There are temperature loggers I've maintained since 2012 in the Namakagan River in Wisconsin um, because of concern about the future of brook trout conservation in that river. And so I had a Climate Change Fellowship from the National Park Service, a George Melendez Wright Fellowship. Uh, Unfortunately, that program has been discontinued, but I benefited from it. And it's because of that that I have felt like I need to be committed to seeing that temperature monitoring through as long as I can. And so I've gone back as often as I can to collect those temperature loggers, download the data and, and redeploy. And so I have a lot of fond memories of the Namakagan River and my work on brook trout there. And I would say that that has to be the top of my favorite projects. That's cool to hear as a, as a Wisconsinite. <laughs> I noticed it in your, in your project list and I wasn't going to mention it, but you did. So I didn't have to. So thank you. <laughs> it's an absolutely beautiful river system. And I enjoy every moment that I get to spend on that river. All right. So we have made it to the final five questions. Are you ready? Absolutely. All right. So the first question, what's your favorite fish? My favorite fish. I mentioned the brook trout earlier. I love, I love the brook trout. They're the pride of the East, but the bane of the West. And I also enjoy seeing species, handling species like the rainbow darter but i have to say the creek chub Mm. (laughs) and the creek chub in part because we had um, one of field sites we took a writer with us often involved people that are not fisheries professionals in the field and scott scott parkinson is his name and he wrote a poem called ode to the creek chub as a result of his experience electrofishing with us and Scott calls the creek chub America's fish. And so I have to say the creek chub. The creek chub is present in the sites where I'm working right now that are impacted by uh, urbanization and acid mine drainage adjacent to environmental justice communities east of Pittsburgh. And the majority of the fish we find at these sites are creek chub. And it's a fish that it's found so many places, um, and uh, it's it's an important component of these stream ecosystems that I think often gets overlooked. 
That's nice. Not so not such a charismatic fish, but an ecologically important fish. That's a good answer. Thanks, Liz. All right. So what is your favorite memory from your career so far? I'm going to revisit the Namakagan River. And it was after a uh, summer of, of uh, hard field work. And, and we had to go back for some additional sampling later in the summer. And we were down to a skeleton crew of three of us and, um, and with some help from the National Park Service. The National Park Service has always been fantastic at helping in the field. And, and I just, I love working with National Park Service personnel. But it was at the end of a couple of weeks of, of hard field work and um, the student that was working with, with me and, and Nathan Evans at the time, we were processing the last sample of fish at one of the streams and the student started to cry. And it was because they had such a wonderful experience that summer when I asked what was, what was wrong, they explained that. And um, that had a tremendous impact on me because when you're in the, doing the hard work and you know, you have to have to get the work done, you don't sometimes realize the, the impact that experience is having on, on others and someone younger than yourself when, when you've been through it dozens of times and hundreds of times. And that's my favorite memory at least. That's a really wonderful memory and story to kind of get you through the hard stuff, I bet. <laughs> yeah, abs- absolutely. Yes, it, it absolutely is, Elise. Um, yeah, you just think when you bring someone to tears of joy that you've, you've succeeded in helping. Absolutely. So next question is, what is your dream job or your dream job location? So I... Lectured earlier on parks and protected areas in my environmental law and policy class, and I told the students this. I've been forthright in the past. Is my dream dream job would one day be Secretary of the Interior? That's a big one. You got to dream big. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> that's really cool. I did regret being in the halls of Congress and, and going with Tom Bigford to, to talk with people about endangered species and the Endangered Species Act. We've met with uh, Senator Cory Booker's staff, and um, we didn't get to meet with him one-on-one, but when we left Cory Booker's office, uh, he was out in the hallway interacting with young people. And just by the way he was interacting with, with others, I thought, uh, this man is going to be president one day. And I almost took my business card and handed it to Senator Booker and said, if you ever need ever need some staff when you get to that stage, please let me know. I didn't um, because I just didn't want to be that person. <laughs> but uh, but it's always fun to engage on, on Capitol Hill. I always en- enjoy trying to solve problems. And I think that that is the type of job where you get to do that. Yeah, I think we do need more scientists who aren't afraid to engage in politics. I feel like the pressure to be impartial at all times is unrealistic. I wholeheartedly agree, Elise. Um, I explained that to the students today. Indiana Dunes National Lakeshore exists because scientists decided to engage. And there was a debate at the time. And Alton Lindsay, one of the founders of biogeography, said in a paper whether one chooses to engage or not is up to them. 
don't chide them for doing so. Don't say don't engage when they know what's best as a scientist if an area that's of high importance is going to be impacted. And so, but for those moments, Indiana Dunes National Lakeshore became Indiana Dunes National Park would just be the port of Indiana with rusted bellies of steel mills. And if we don't engage, there is a risk just the same of the risk when we do engage. Putting yourself out there is a risk and you do risk making a mistake. There is no doubt about that. I have done that. And, and you learn from it and you move on. But if you don't engage with policymakers, with the public, and you're an expert in a particular area where you could engage on, then you're missing an opportunity to serve the wider community, to serve the taxpayers that are supporting you and your research or your work, or your management. There is an opportunity there to, to choose to engage. And I absolutely agree with you, Lise. We need more scientists to step up, share their stories, and help inform the broader public of the importance of the work they're doing, importance of the work to the public. The next question is, if money were not an issue, what's one project that you would love to work on? I, I love this question because it's it, one thing I always love growing up. My parents had a book... Um, by Carl Sagan on the shelf, billions and billions. And I always loved imagining what was out there in the, in the universe and recent discoveries that suggest there are water bodies beneath uh, uh, icy surfaces on moons like Europa and our solar system. I would absolutely love to be a team member of uh, a group sending a probe to another planet to find out what's beneath the icy, icy surface. So if money were no object, that is something I would want to spend my time doing. That is a great answer. I Every now and then I see something along the lines of like astrobiology. And I'm like, wow, that's a thing now. <laughs> like something we're actively kind of thinking about more now as scientists is if there were life on other planets or other cosmic bodies, <laughs> like moons, what would they look like and how would they exist and live and, you know, what would their biological processes be? And it's cool to be a scientist right now. It is an exciting time to be a scientist without a doubt, Elise, I agree. All right. Last question. It's a little bit harder than the rest. If there was one point or principle you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? Be kind to others and to yourself. I'm a big fan of that one. Thank you. <laughs> well, Patrick, thank you for coming on the uh, podcast today. Thank you, Elise. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I really enjoyed our conversation. I enjoyed the questions, and um, I hope to get to, to meet in person at some point. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to show up to an AFS meeting or something. <laughs> and maybe any of our listeners too, you know, if you want to show up at an AFS meeting, join, be a member, um and don't forget to vote in that upcoming election. I do know that our next annual meeting is in Grand Rapids in August, and I look forward to seeing people there. 
Alrighty. Well, I will put something in when I post this podcast about the election deadlines and that those kinds of details so that if any listener is interested in becoming an AFS member or voting in the election, if you already are a member, then there'll be some information there for you. If people want to find more information or get a hold of you, how would they do that? So the easiest way to find, learn more about me and the place where I work, water.pit.edu or geology.pit.edu. My email is pds25 at pit.edu. If you would like to get a hold of me or any of the other hosts, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at fisheriespod or via email at feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast merch available on Teespring. I'm Elise. Thank you for listening to the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, be kind. <laughs>